there's other women like me that want something like this. Like, I know I'm not the only one. And yeah, from there, it just really took on and a bit of a life of its own. So within a few months, I had quite a handful of cafes stocking them. I couldn't keep up with the demand, so I started hiring like friends and family to roll protein balls on the weekends. Within a few months, I was like, I can't keep up with this. This is crazy. Hey, welcome to Ladyland, a podcast by Lady Brains, where we chat to ambitious women about what it takes to become an overnight success. Huge spoiler alert, the overnight success does not exist. We're your hosts, Caitlin, Anna, and Maver. Now get comfy, fellow Lady Brains, and ride with us to Ladyland. Jess Thomas is the founder and brains behind Health Lab a multi-million dollar wellness and beauty brand that was born out of a desire to create healthy snacks to cure that afternoon stress-induced sugar craving we all know too well. After testing out her all-natural protein balls on her co-workers in the early days, she quickly realised she was onto a winning formula and started selling them to cafes all across Melbourne. Fast forward three years and Jess has managed to bootstrap her way onto the shelves of Australia's biggest retailers, including Woolworths, My Chemist Warehouse, David Jones, 7-Eleven and the list goes on and on. We started the chat by asking Jess what she was like as a kid growing up. I feel like my answer is really cliche. <laughs> you have it a involves a lemonade stand. Yeah. Oh, it does. It Perfect. does. No. You're the first one, the I first think. one, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. I had with lemonade, an stand, lemonade stand with, yeah. with an actual lemonade stand. I had a dog walking business. I had a babysitting business. I had a really bad business, <laughs> which involved charging kids in the playground a dollar to come and pat the next door neighbor's dog. Oh my God. I made heaps of money because wow. we dug a hole under the <laughs> fence next door. It was quite entrepreneurial. Far out. We got in a lot of trouble. Yeah, a bit extortionate. (laughs) I I know. I look back and I'm like, that's probably bullying these days. Um, It's a bit terrible. But I don't think I recognise that. Like it's only something I've looked at, you know, looking back. At the time I didn't think, you know, I'm going to start a business and, Yeah. yeah, so it's definitely something in reflection. I was like, oh, I did run like all these random businesses when I was like 10. Yeah, it's funny when you kind of look back and you're like, oh, yeah, this is the path. This is where it was supposed to be, yeah, like in started. hindsight. Yeah. But yeah, it definitely wasn't a focus for a long time. Mm. If it makes you feel any better, <laughs> I also had a very, I guess, non-ethical business yeah. <laughs> when I was younger. Um, we would, <laughs> we actually, <laughs> this is actually quite bad when I think about it. Um, we were in primary school and we had like a save the environment group at school that was run by one of the teachers and I remember one weekend my friend and I decided to go door knocking to raise money <laughs> I can see where this is going yeah, I think I can um, see. yeah we definitely kept the money they weren't aware of our <laughs> our charitable oh door knocking rounds um so yeah I hope that makes you feel a bit better about yeah, your ethical standards it as a child. really bad mentioning that but yeah anyway Bunch yeah. of criminals amongst us. Hopefully no one from my primary school is listening. <laughs> they want their money back. Yeah, probably. So where did that come from, that kind of drive to do um, all of that when you were young? Yeah, like I don't – it didn't come from my family. Like bless them, it wasn't really something we grew up with. I really don't know. I think I was the oldest child and I must say I was pretty bossy. So like I had all my siblings kind of following whatever I wanted but I have no idea where it came from. It just, yeah – just kind of innate. I know. Mm, yeah, I yeah. really don't know where it came from. But, um, yeah, I definitely think when you look back, I was like, okay, yeah, there was definitely It all makes sense. sense. Yeah, it mm. makes sense. But mm. um, very random. 
And you've always kind of maintained that motivation throughout your career and growing up or did it kind of wane a bit? Yeah, well, I think growing up in like school and uni, I I really thought I was on a corporate career path. So Mm. there was definitely no thought of starting a business and that really didn't play on my mind. Mm. So, yeah, I think motivation's always been there. Um, And I think I've always thought quite creatively. But, yeah, definitely, yeah, don't think I really had that entrepreneurial streak in me, like noticeably um, in many of my middle years. It's probably something that's come out later on, maybe as your confidence grows, I think, Mm. as well. Mm. Um, And then, you know, opportunity meets, you know, other things happen and, yeah, you kind of end up and you're suddenly running a business. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and it's probably also awareness. I mean, I think a lot of us grow up not really having the awareness. We have advisors at school who probably never told us about entrepreneurship. They're like, yeah, you can become a dentist or you can become an accountant. more traditional. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It was like lawyers, doctors, you know, there was no talk of running a business when I was at school. Mm. So I know that that's changing now, which is really exciting Mm. for the younger generations. But, um, yeah, it was just not even an option as a career field when I was in school. So, Mm. yeah, no, it's exciting. So what was your career trajectory when you were in high school and then uni? Like where were you headed? So... It was really funny. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I must say I did really well at school. And then so I just got this score with VCE and I thought, okay, what do I do now? And look back, it was such a bad decision. I chose to go to the uni where my best friend was going because, you know, (laughs) you're 18 and impressionable. So I ended up in a commerce and journalism degree, which really the first few years I was so lost in, I really didn't enjoy it. Besides the fact that there were a lot of guys in commerce. So oh, yeah. I, really, I thought I'd chosen quite well for a while. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then I stumbled across marketing and it was the main subject I actually did well in because I was pretty much scraping past all the micro and macroeconomics and mm. so bored in most of the lectures. Mm. Um, and then suddenly I was like, oh, actually, I really enjoy this. And so I kind of didn't discover marketing till kind of third or fourth year uni. And I guess, you know, you're learning things in the other courses, even if you're not that passionate about it. But it was only till later on that I was like, okay, this is what I think I'm going to do. And then, yeah, I really set out, as I said, you know, wanting to go into a big business and I applied to be an intern at L'Oreal in my final year of uni and that's, I got the role there. So that kind of started my transition across to doing marketing for quite a few years. And what was that like? (laughs) Just a quick caveat, I also worked at L'Oreal at a similar time to Jess, but we never worked directly together. I used to see you in the hallways and I was like a young, fresh kind of, you know, googly-eyed intern and thought you were super cool and I was like, oh, that's so nice. (laughs) I started as a googly-eyed intern as well. Yeah, Yeah, I think L'Oreal is such, it's unique, you can probably relate, quite a unique place to work. And I think if you don't know anything else as well coming out of uni, I just thought it was really normal. (laughs) Um, and, you know, there were some beautiful things. Like I really liked the people that were there and the fast-paced culture. I really thrived on that. I had amazing marketing budgets that one day hopefully mm-hmm. I'll have again. Mm-hmm. And I think you learnt a lot. Like I definitely think I developed really quickly there and you got pushed straight out of your comfort zone. So, you know, in terms of learning to sink or swim, it was a really good environment, I think. In terms of the, I guess, not-so-good bits, And I probably didn't realise this at the time either and it's kind of looking back but you definitely don't get to touch and feel and create. So you're not involved in product development or brand development, like you're so far removed. So L'Oreal decide everything out of Paris, their headquarters. And I remember it would take like three or four years. We're always kind of behind the trends and Mm. you couldn't really respond to the market or what customers were wanting. So 
you know, looking back, I think that was definitely something that was missing for me is being able to kind of make those decisions and create stuff from the beginning. So, yeah. And do you think that that was part of why you left and moved into food or did you kind of really want to explore food? No, food happened by accident. I think I was more, I was ready for a change. I'd been at L'Oreal for probably six years and I think I was ready to kind of explore the world and get out of there. And I stumbled onto food. I definitely wasn't planning to go into that industry. Um, but I guess sometimes, mm. you know, everything happens for a reason Take in a way. Take the opportunity. Yeah. yeah. And I did enjoy food. Like beauty is a great industry. I love it a lot. But I definitely had a lot more fun probably in food. Mm. Um, and I feel like you can be a little bit more creative. But, um, yeah, you know, it was a really good change at the time. And what was your headspace like when you were at L'Oreal? You had this probably quite clear pathway or trajectory, been there for six years, um, you know, doing something that you were excited by, I guess. What were you thinking at that time that made you take the jump? Was it a hard decision? Yeah, you're right. So I think in somewhere like L'Oreal is really clear, like Mm -hmm. role titles and your career path is so clear and you're kind of working your way up. I think for me, and it was kind of ticking boxes, was probably part of the reason I moved was I wanted to be a marketing manager because that's kind of like the bee's knees when you're in marketing. And I, I was lucky enough to be offered that role. So it probably was also driven my move by a title change, which mm. you, know, you look back mm. and think, you know, you make decisions. And, and it was a good change and I like really learned a lot in the new role. But yeah, I think I definitely was trying to follow that traditional mm. path and I knew what you needed to do to get to the next level and are kind of ticking boxes as I was going. And you get so caught up within that culture. Like yeah. Yeah. that yeah. is what you do and yeah. that's what success means in that sort of environment. So yeah. it's kind of it's so true. Yeah. yeah. And it's really weird to kind of reflect on it and you're like, okay, cool. So then after marketing manager, I become GM general manager and then I become you know general manager of the division and then I go mm. on to become a vice president maybe I go so overseas true. and then you're like hang on where's the end and do I want to and also do I want to do this exactly yeah. do I want to get to that end point like what is this all for and yeah it's funny now when I interview people to come into health lab because I'm like there's no traditional career path you create your own you know there's not even really traditional job titles and think for a lot Mm. of people that's really hard to get their head around Mm. Um, but I was definitely you know on that trajectory and I think it's a good question sort of looking up and seeing if that's you know the people above you if that's the kind of life and and what you want and I don't think you always spend time looking at that Mm. and is that the success that you know is right for you so yeah it's a really good exercise. Mm. But I don't think you always realise you're doing it at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm. Get, you just yourself in it. In it. Yeah. yeah, and you don't really look around. So it's really easy to happen. So then from L'Oreal, you yep. moved into food. What was that role and where were you working? So I was a marketing manager for a brand in Retail Zoo. So yep. Retail Zoo mm. owned brands like Boost mm. Juice um, and I was working for one of their Mexican brands. So totally Salsas. random. Yes, mm. salsas. <laughs> yeah. And the poor team, all I was trying to do was bring healthy food in. I don't think they knew what to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> we need sweet potato fries and we need salads and I was trying to change oh, the whole menu. You were ahead of the time. I was. Mm. Look at everyone mm. out. Grill, They're like, sweet potato fries will never take off. <laughs> I remember that. Oh, no. Yep. And, you know, I launched things like a quinoa salad, which at the time was really revolutionary. But, you know, I think I was causing them quite a headache because, you know, (laughs) their best sellers were fries at the time. So, you know, it was a really different customer base. (laughs) Um, And so I was trying to bring women in and change the menu. And yeah, it was, it was really cool learning. And I guess Retail Zoo is a really good company in terms of marketing and branding and disruption. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. You know, spending time with Jeff Ellis and Janine, like, you know, they really are quite inspiring in terms of how they think and the brands they've created. So I think even more so than the food side of things was learning how the marketing worked there. And I think I've taken a lot from that with Health Lab. I'm interested to know about how that transition was for you coming from L'Oreal, which is this big corporate company. You don't like we have no interaction with the people who own that company mm-hmm. or that brand. Was that a strange transition going into a business where it's not a startup, but yeah. the owners and the founders you're dealing with directly on a day-to-day basis? Really different. Also for the fact that I kept using all these weird French terminology <laughs> that no one understood <laughs> and everyone would look at me like I was an alien. Um, yeah. yeah, it's definitely different having decision makers in your office um, where you can have that debate and discussion and and have meetings that are actually productive where you can decide you want to launch a new product or a new menu and be involved in that process. So definitely enjoyed it a lot more. And there was definitely challenges as well. You know, you're really answerable to people that are so passionate about the brand and they've lived and breathed it for years and years. Mm. But I think I definitely enjoyed the transition to that type of environment. What would you say were some of the challenges? They really pushed you to think really creatively and differently and I think you know when you're used to kind of following the way things have always been done in an environment I must say at L'Oreal where you kind of there's a lot more rules in what you can do whereas there they want you to break all the rules so I think that was a really big learning for me to really get out of my comfort zone and and challenge the way I've been thinking so Mm. I think I enjoyed that a lot um, but it definitely came with its challenges I was also in a franchisee model, which I don't know if Mm. any of you know, but it's really challenging. Mm. You're then answerable to hundreds of people who have bought their own stores and it's their whole life and their whole business and they want to know where their marketing investment's going. So, you know, you suddenly feel a lot more responsibility than, Mm. you know, another business where it's coming from lots of money from Paris and Mm. you're not as attached to the outcome. So you have to, you know, stand up in front of all these people that run family, run yeah. businesses and, and tell them what you're planning to do and why and, you know, there's a bit of pressure there. So, mm. yeah, but it was cool. Like it's a fun, fun business and there was a lot of creativity and a lot of random campaigns. Like I ran one campaign which was having crickets in a burrito. Like <laughs> so far. Whose idea was that? Yeah. <laughs> I can't say it was mine. Um, <laughs> And yeah, I ended up on television with it and, you know, I was two weeks oh, into I my new that. role and I was on national TV, mm-hmm. live TV with Carl Stefanovic. Wow. <laughs> Pitching a cricket burrito. Behind <laughs> that one. 100% eating a cricket burrito. Oh and, um, yeah, so it was definitely a lot of really strange things that happened. But um, I think that's where you learn the most. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it was a lot of fun yeah. but um, definitely got me thinking. So how long were you there? 18 months. Okay. Not too long. And is that where you left there and started up the health lab? Yes. Mm-hmm. It, um, I'd started it on the side, yeah. so out of work hours. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it was definitely where I kind of started the business. So I had that running on the side for about six months before I resigned. So how did that happen? You're working at Retail Zoo, you're not really thinking about entrepreneurship, yep. and then all of a sudden you've started this business on the side. Did it just come from like a passion or what triggered it? Yeah, so it was definitely a passion. So I'd started making protein balls myself and sort of sharing them with my colleagues and and deciding that they were just such a good snack to have and nowhere had them. So, you know, I'd run out of my stash for the week and I couldn't buy them anywhere else. And, it, you know, it seems weird now kind of four years on that so much in the market's changed, but really like 
there wasn't protein balls in cafes and, you know, the only thing you could get were muffins or a piece of fruit. You know, the service mm. stations or 7-Elevens where I used to go it was just those really artificial protein balls. Yeah. So I literally started it as a side project and my first stockist was my local cafe where I'd get my coffee. Um, so I just started taking them in there and they started selling. So I don't even remember the conscious moment where I thought I'll start selling these. I really, I think I'd maybe even just mentioned it to him while I was having coffee and he wanted me to bring them in. But I, I kind of had identified there was a bit of a gap in the market and I was like, there's other women like me that want something like this. Like I know I'm not the only one. Mm. And, yeah, from there it just really took on and a bit of a life of its own. So within a few months I had quite a handful of cafes stocking them. I couldn't keep up with the demand so I started hiring like friends and family to roll protein balls on the weekends. So it was really crazy and chaotic. There were people in my kitchen all the time. There was coconut everywhere. There was, yeah, people in and out of the house. So it was kind of random. And then, yeah, within a few months I was like, I can't keep up with this. This is crazy. Um, So I was, you know, delivering protein balls on my way to work. I was rolling protein balls all weekend and making them and then we started an online store um, and we started delivering them in the mail around Australia. I don't think they were very shelf stable (laughs) at the time. (laughs) Like just hope they ate them really quickly. Um, So, yeah, I look back and think of some of the things we did. But um, beautiful customers, they kind of really supported us. So, yeah, just was I look back and it's just a bit of a blur but it was Mm. pretty organic and free range business the first few months. And how did you fund it in the early days? Was it just like bits of money? Well, cafe, yeah, yeah. cash, like fully funded by itself at the start. And then a few months in I thought, well, if I really want to give this a go, you know, I'm going to need a little bit of money just to start basic things like a website. So I Mm. sold my car and I got $5,000 cash for it. So I got that and then that was pretty much all the money I had to start with. But um, I think there's a danger in the cash thing though because Mm. you're not really paying attention to margins and Mm, if mm. you're actually making money. So it was quite a few months after that where I was like, oh, I probably need to revise my pricing and (laughs) I don't know where all my money's going. And I was buying all my ingredients from like the local health food store. So not like wholesale (laughs) (laughs) Rookie error. So, you know, you like you make heaps of really bad decisions along the way, which you learn from obviously really quickly. But um, I think definitely the start was a, a very much a hobby business and um, wasn't done properly, but yeah, you had to, I had to learn pretty quick after that. But you do have to start somewhere. So, to. I mean, the whole, you know, going to the local shop for your supplies, it seems like a reasonable decision exactly. at the time. Yeah. And you don't yeah. know, you're right, you don't even yeah. know you can go and get yeah. bulk ingredient right. supplies. Like that took me months to work out, um, mm. you know, and you sort of piece things together as you're going. Um, but yeah, you do. I think it's important you make those, those errors and you learn really quickly from them, but they're funny to look back on. Yeah. So how did you invest or how did you spend that initial five grand? Because you could have done a lot of different things with that. Like what did, what did you do? It all went to a website. When all, website. all went to a website. Mm-hmm. And was like the a best designer. investment? <laughs> yeah, probably not at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess you just thought you needed a, yeah. a really cool website and mm-hmm. I had no idea how to do it and now I don't realise things like Shopify are so user-friendly mm-hmm. and I was paying quite a bit of money for someone to set up on a Shopify but, yeah, all went to the website and maybe a bit in ingredients. But, um, you know, even back then paying influencers wasn't really a thing on social media. Yeah. Believe it or not, people mm. would post for free. It's mm. crazy to think about. So, like, I didn't have those type of decisions to make. It was mm. kind of more traditional business decisions. So in the early days you sort of said that it 
sort of took on a life of its own and it grew. I'm imagining a lot through word of mouth and like local cafes picking up that other cafes were stocking this protein ball and so forth. There had to have been other things that you were doing that went into that growth. Like what was your kind of marketing strategy at the beginning? Yep. So, I mean, although you didn't have to pay, social media was still a really good time for us and we were lucky we just would send product to women, contact them um, and they loved the product and they posted for us. So that definitely helped us get traction. We were really lucky to have some breaks with some big brands. Mm. So really early on Nike approached us about catering for their women's tour which was just, yeah, crazy at the time to think of what stage we were at and kind of working with a brand such as Nike. So it was a huge break for us. Um, and we catered for about 5,000 women in Sydney. It was mental. Crazy. We were, we were so unprepared <laughs> for the event. Did but you it was, hand make all of those we balls? Hand, uh, yeah, we were still oh hand making wow. them. And we were running out really quickly. So we were like chopping them up because the girls were starving. Um, but we got to, you know, get our brand out with Nike, which was another great opportunity so a few good cross collaborations, I think, back then helped as well with some brands that were more established than we were, mm. and a lot of sampling. Like we gave away a lot of balls. We were doing a lot of tastings, you know, really trying to expose our product to as many people as possible. But yeah, I definitely think it wasn't anything that we'd planned. It kind of just opportunities would come up and we'd grab them, or we'd just be contacting people. But very active. Um, but yeah. And when you say we, was, did you have any help back then or we, was it you kind of driving yeah, I, a lot I'd of Yeah, I'd probably this? say we now. Yeah, back then it was me at the yeah. start definitely. Um, after about almost a year full-time, so it was a start, sort of a side business for six months, then I mm. quit my corporate job and I was running it by myself. And then it was just getting so mental that my husband actually sold his business that he had at the time and joined me. Oh, wow. Um, so it was kind of the two of us and he'd been helping me a little bit on the side where he had capacity as well. Um, so, yeah, so I say we – and he was great. It was it was good help. Um, and then I obviously had people I hired, so things like my cousin, my sister's friends, you know, that would help do the manual labour. But, yeah, so it was me at the start a lot um, and I just loved it. So it kind of didn't feel – Like work. No, it didn't mm. feel like work and you kind of had that adrenaline. So you kept going and you could work crazy hours and it was a bit of fun. But, yeah, so it was a bit – definitely um, organic at yeah. the start. But yeah, so then it did help when I had someone else come on board. Was it a bit of a shell shock when you quit your job and you were like, oh crap, I have all day every day to do this. Like how did you transition from so many years in corporate life to suddenly yeah. assume working from home yeah, and, from home. you know, not hobby. having yeah, yeah. not having the structure of like nine to five. Yeah. Like how was that? Yeah, I actually say I loved it. Like I think I was probably really blessed the business was in a position where it was busy enough. So the first month I worked solely on health lab, we quadrupled what we were doing in sales. And I realized, you know, if I actually focus on this business, it can really be something. I definitely think it is a big change suddenly working by yourself, not having a team around you to bounce ideas off um, and being in your, you know, your own bubble a lot. But I guess I was still out selling a lot. So I was out meeting people heaps um, so cafe owners and business owners, so I had a little bit of that contact. Um, but I think I thrived, to be honest. I think I was ready for the change and yeah. I was probably naive enough that I just thought if it doesn't work, I can go back. You know, I didn't really have a mortgage. Mm. I didn't have a family yet. So there wasn't as much pressure. Or as risk, I, think, I guess. Yeah, or yeah. risk that I might have felt it had been, you know, a few more years down the track. Yeah. And so how long after you quit did you investigate 
manufacturing, mm-hmm. et cetera? Like yep. what was that product development process like? Yeah, so if it was only like a few months after I quit that like we couldn't keep up with demand um, and so manufacturing was the next logical step um, and that was definitely a challenge to find manufacturers. So we were so small. As I said earlier, people weren't really doing balls back then. It's kind of a, a big thing now but they're a lot harder to make than bars. So it was quite hard to find people that could even make them or had the machinery and equipment mm. to do it. And then you'd speak to a manufacturer and they're like, oh, we can do them for you but it's like 50,000 units for one flavour and, you know, all these different payment terms and you're like, Mm. we were so much smaller than that. So we kept persisting and we found a few family businesses um, that we just keep nagging and I think they thought, you know, they're so passionate, we'll give them a break. Mm. They kind of let us do some smaller runs to begin with and and kind of grew with us. So, yeah, we're really lucky to find those partners. And was it a tough process? Like did you have to learn a lot self-educate so tough understand like so many mistakes and regulations and stuff I'm sure around food products like yeah. like we had to start you know like you need to lab test your product and check their shelf stable I'm mm. like oh no they're you know like all these things you just hadn't even thought of they're fine, fine. They're fine. Yeah. Yeah. they last a few weeks yeah. um you know even challenges like manufacturers just Back then they just wanted to produce it with, you know, natural preservatives or um, binders that were cheaper ingredients like syrups or honey. Yeah. Um, and I was like, but I really don't want them in my product. And they're like, no, it's impossible. You have to have them in. And I was like, well, I don't want it. <laughs> so there was heaps of months where it was product development, you know, taking a recipe from your home kitchen to mass scale was a whole <laughs> nother mm. level. That, you know, you have to think of things like commercial reality of products, sourceability of ingredients, you know, is it actually, you know, are you able to get that special ingredient from, you know, that health food store that I'd been buying my <laughs> ingredients from? Uh, yeah, that, and still to this day I'd say manufacturing is such a learning process. Mm. Um, you know, it really helps to have good partners on that know what they're doing, but it's constant tweaking of products and seeing how things go and, improvements constantly along the way and seeing if you can do things better. So it's definitely been like a continual learning process for me manufacturing. Yeah. And are you the one that still drives that in the business? Are you the product development specialist, expert? I'm the chief innovation <laughs> Chief taster. <laughs> chief taster. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I love it. I just love it so much. Um, yeah. I'm very hands-on with it. It's mm. probably I just won't give it to someone else. I'm sure there's potentially better qualified people out there Mm -hmm. um but yeah I love it so I'm very hands-on you know I have got good people around Mm. me that specialize in certain areas now and I think I've learned you know from mistakes over the time you know how we can get better and I know the rules now and you know we take things so seriously like we have really high standards manufacturing Mm. Mm. which took a long way to get there um especially now where you know retailing in the U.S. Canada and the UK and there's there's so many stricter policies and risks of lawsuits so you kind of want to be really really careful mm. um, but yeah it's a big passion of mine so I love it mm. so yeah I'm really lucky to be able to do that. You know you said it was a relative it was a new product at the time um, balls yeah what narrative were you telling how was it different to the other brands out there you know how did you get people to buy? So I think there were a few things that helped us. So mm. first of all, the fact that our product, so there was, you know, a handful of protein balls at the time, but mm. no one had really done a clean version yet. So we were the first to market that didn't have sugar and syrups, didn't have additives or stabilizers. So we we're hundred percent natural. So mm. that obviously helped. We entered the market from a branding perspective really differently to health food brands that were there at the time. 
So we took a lot more risks with our branding and our brand personality and how we're talking to our customers, what we were saying, even the hashtags we were using. It was all very different to, I think, the way health food brands had been operating. Mm. You know, they were all about educating customers on the health benefits of almonds and, you know, keeping your energy levels up and things like that. And we came in you know, we knew we were talking to millennial women. We we're talking about sugar cravings and we didn't want to talk about calorie counting and diets and, you know, we had a hashtag babes with balls and I look back, I launched a range of protein powders that, you know, the names were like fuck ordinary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like shine like a diamond. Like just yeah. it was really, I, I guess at the time, you know, we had heaps of fun with the brand and I think that really helped us stand out a lot. Yeah. Um, even when we were dealing with retailers, they probably thought, who is this girl coming in here with, you know, babes with balls on her packaging? And, you know, we're only targeting millennial women and I'm not catering for anyone else. And they'd look at me like I was crazy. But yeah, I think definitely having those points of difference really helped us. I'm eating. You're eating. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a question. Yeah. So, um, obviously, you started the business. Um, selling your balls through cafes and then you created a website and you were direct-to-consumer. Now you're in My Chemist Warehouse and supermarkets. Like at what point did you decide, okay, we need to diversify and we're going to target these other retailers? Yeah. Yeah, we definitely started off very much more in the food scene, yoga studios and things. And then I guess probably my husband coming into the business and he had a really different way of looking at it and he said to me, you know, you need to be in petrol stations. And I said, no effing way am I having my beautiful protein balls in a service station. He's like, but why? Like, you know, there's busy consumers there, you know, there's women shopping there. They need healthy options. And I think, you know, and then also thinking like, you know, balls is a, it's a volume game. Like you need Mm. to be reaching consumers um, and getting your product out there. And you can't necessarily do that, you know, from those smaller channels as much as I love working with them. So I think he really challenged my thinking on the potential, I guess, for the business Mm. and the brand and to not limit myself to thinking it could only be considered premium or really healthy if it Mm. was in certain channels. So once we started manufacturing, then the next process was from there, even just trying to get them wrapped for retail. So that was, took us a bit longer as well. Mm. And then I think it's, again, just been a journey for us. So we sort of have found we started just um, retailing to health food stores and smaller independents. And then I guess you realise, well, why aren't we going after the big guys, mm. you know? Yeah. And what's stopping us from, you know, our beautiful shoppers are there and, you know, they deserve to have really good products in there. So, yeah, it's kind of probably been more of a mindset journey when yeah. it comes to retail, which is funny because um, I definitely didn't set out wanting to be in Woolworths yeah. and now, like, I love the fact, you know, it's a great, amazing opportunity that we're in there. Um, but, yeah, definitely I think was changing the way you thought about your brand mm. and then realising, well, you want to get that into as many women's hands as you can and the best way to do that is through, you know, great retailers. Mm. What was the process like getting into Woolworths? Long. Yeah. <laughs> like what was your yeah, what pitch? Was like how many meetings did you have? What Like what did it yeah. involve? Retail is a really interesting game mm. um, and it's every experience is so different. I think I've learned as well. So I've probably been pitching to retailers for three years now and, you know, they they definitely have what they're trying to achieve in the market and I went in probably 
really wanting to show about the brand and I was so passionate about the product and my consumers and not that they're not at all, but, you know, they obviously have realities that they need to meet um, and objectives as a business. I think it's taken time to build some relationships to really prove ourselves in the market. So Mm. I think, you know, as much as they probably don't, you know, want to take on a new brand, you kind of really have to earn your stripes when it comes to Mm. retailers and they want to prove that your concept works before they take you on. And I think our product's gotten better and I think our commercials have gotten better and I think overall our business has gotten better. Mm. So, you know, you look back and we got so many no's early on and I I realise now we just weren't ready and I think Mm. it was a real blessing that no big retailer said yes to us too early on. Um, And then obviously, you know, we're in a much better spot now but you kind of need one good break. So for us the big one was Chemist Warehouse. Mm -hmm. So they were awesome and they... I think they really believed in what we were doing in our products and our brand and they took a risk on us um, and they were fantastic, really, really good retailer to launch with that kind of took our brand to the next level and I guess had other retailers sort of starting to take interest. So it really is a bit of a snowball effect. Mm. Um, I find in the Australian market you have to kind of really prove yourself and, and work with a few good retailers before the rest will even look at you. Mm. So I think another part of it is it just takes time. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned just before you built a lot of good relationships and it was kind of the long game yep. almost. How important has your network been in terms of like your business success and how important have had, have those relationships been? Yeah, like it's funny as well because category managers do tend to change yes. a lot. Yes. So you'll build they a do. beautiful relationship <laughs> yeah. and, you know, you'll have, and then mm-hmm. they go. So that's been a real challenge yeah, yeah. and you're starting like, you know. Start from scratch start basically. From scratch. So mm-hmm. like we got into 7-Eleven about two years ago and then like literally the week after we got in, the category manager changed and it was another two years before we got oh, wow. actually got in the shelves. Wow. So we got like a yes, you're in 7-Eleven and then, you know, then, and mm. their business changed and they had delays and so um, that's definitely a reality. Um, but it's a small world so you learn relationships are super mm. important because that category manager will end up turning up as another category manager at another retailer you want to get into or in another area that you decide to launch products into and it really is a, a very small Australia, you know, it's tiny, not huge. Yeah, teeny tiny. Teeny <laughs> tiny. You know, when I look at how many retailers there are in the US compared to here. So I would definitely say it's mm. super important. And people are really helpful though. So we're being pretty blessed if it's, you know, category managers, whether it's even other brands, I find that there is a bit of a community in the food and retail world mm. as much as there's, you know, the not so nice stuff that happens with competitors. But overall I'd say people are pretty helpful, whether mm, it's manuf- yeah. packaging people, helping you connect you with um, manufacturers and, and things like that. There, Yeah, definitely is important. Mm. And I, one thing that I've learned as well is like you just have to ask all That's of the time. That's so true. You mm. just ask yeah. and all people can say is no, yeah. but most of the time people say yes. Yeah, you're so. right. And it's it's having that confidence to just totally. ask the question and not worry about what they think or, you know, if I don't understand things still, I'm like, I don't understand, you know, what you mean by this and, mm. you know, and actually understanding what's involved and what you need to do rather than kind of just pretending you know, which mm. I think I used to do at the start. Mm. And Don't do we all? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At times. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Sure, we can do that. Yeah. 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 Why not? I think that was a lesson I learnt at L'Oreal actually. Mm. It's mm. very much one of those places where if you don't ask what someone's talking about, like you will very quickly drown. Yeah. Mm. And mm. 
it's funny because I think a lot of the senior people in the business that do well, you see them asking a lot of questions even yeah. if they seem like stupid questions and yeah. you learn that quite quickly and I think it can come handy when you're oh, doing questions are so good. Mm. And, you know, sometimes you might only get half an hour with a category manager and they're not the best breed on email. So, you know, you don't have long and you need to walk out of there and really know what's happening. So, yeah, definitely agree. Mm. Ask questions. Mm. So international expansion. Yes. You're very, like, Got a great foothold in Australia, and you've just done a really big kind of expansion and launch in the US. Can you tell us a bit about that and what that process has been like? Yes. So the US, um, we launched in there. So it's still pretty early days. So we went in there mid-year this year. So we're in probably about three hundred retailers in the moment, which will be about six hundred by the end of the year. Um, so still very small compared to the size of the market. Um, and it's so different. It's such a different market to here. Um, gosh, I've had to learn so much, even just the way the whole system works. There's so many rules around everything. I used to think Australia was conservative, but no, there's heaps of like hierarchical rules, like who's allowed to contact who and mm-hmm. you don't really have a direct relationship with buyers. So there's, it's just a completely different world. It's also an expensive market to play in. Mm. So you definitely, you know, you need to do things smart and make some good decisions, but it's an exciting market. So I'd say retailers are way more innovative over there. The trends, everyone's ahead of the trends Mm. um, before they come here. You don't realise, but you go over there and everyone's just so into things um, and health food's in such a good time over there. So, yeah, we're pretty excited about the opportunities in the States. Mm. So how have you navigated all mm. of those rules and regulations and relationships and all of those, you know, weird nuances of the US market? Yeah, Have you found someone to help you? Or? Yes. So mm. we, probably relationship building yeah. really came into it. So we went to Expo West, um, which is a huge food fair um, over in March. We exhibited there. So we made a lot of kind of connections, which... And it's, again, been just following up those relationships and Mm, asking questions and asking them to connect you with people. You really have to be kind of a bit of a stalker, Mm. Um, (laughs) you know, but LinkedIn's my favourite tool because you really can find Find who you need. You can. And, like, you can find their name and then you can guess their email. What category they buy for. Yeah. So I probably have broken a few rules. So I still, <laughs> I still try and go to the top. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, relationships and finding the right people on the ground to help you navigate has been essential for us. Yep. Mm. Mm. I want to kind of go back a little bit to the start because obviously you're growing and things are getting quite massive. Mm-hmm. Is that what you kind of envisioned once the business was kind of snowballing in those first few months where you're like, okay, cool, we're going to make this something really big? And did you have any doubts about your capability to do that? Mm -hmm. So I would say definitely not. Like I don't think we ever, I ever started the business thinking we're going to be in 6,000 retailers in three years' time. And I think maybe that was a good thing as well because I think I'd at that early stage thought, okay, how am I going to get from here to there? I probably would have got overwhelmed and almost Mm. kind of paused in a way. So I think it was great that the start of the business flowed really organically. I think that's changed now though, seeing what's happened with our growth and I think your mindset changes a lot as well along the journey and you realise that you can do these things and that limitation isn't really there unless you believe it. So I think, you know, my mindset to business has changed a lot over the last few years. So now we probably are wanting to create that and have set really ambitious goals for ourselves probably a bit scary but yeah definitely um you know think we might as well give it a shot and try and go big yeah in terms of doubting 
capabilities. Definitely think um, there's been self-doubt along the way. I think, again, going back to kind of the mindset, that's been the biggest challenge is to really believe in yourself, um, not get freaked out when challenges happen, understand that you really can do amazing things. But I think definitely having to overcome that inner voice and, and believe in yourself in creating the business has been a really big part of my development personally. How have you done that? Yeah. <laughs> how, how, how do you overcome that, you know, mindset? Yeah. I love YouTube. There's some like, <laughs> great videos. There's great stuff on there, like some really, and, and podcasts, I must say, like I love yeah. them. I think you can listen to some incredible stories and, and you know, listen to people and think, you know, they've done it. It's possible. And I think just being aware of it, like mm. really sort of challenging it when that comes up. I think women in particular we do doubt ourselves a lot more than I think men I've worked with. They kind of just have this inner belief. You know, I'm probably generalising a little bit, but I think, mm-hmm. you know, we do doubt ourselves and have those thoughts play a little bit more. So I think trying to be conscious of it um, and, yeah, really trying to manage how you talk to yourself. Mm-hmm. That's constant, you know, process for me as well. I think now I'm a mum. Yeah. That's really made me conscious of it and I really want to instil my daughter with those beliefs and that confidence and that mm you know, thinking that you can achieve anything and the only limitations you set are yourself. So I think that for me has been a big development process as well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, And I guess that is the whole purpose of this podcast kind of, mm. you know, it's about sharing stories of amazing women who've done amazing things but also kind of having a real conversation about the shit stuff and yeah. the fact that, you know, from the outside it appears one way but actually the reality behind that is it's harder than it seems sort of thing. So it's so much harder (laughs) yeah. and so much goes wrong. And there's so many, like literally every day I have a curveball thrown at us and Mm. you're right. Like it can look so easy on the outside, but it is really challenging and there's long days and there's those moments where you kind of, I just really hope it gets all worth it. But um, Mm. yeah, I think that it's great that you guys share that on your podcast because I think it's really important that you know, other women and other entrepreneurs hear that it's not mm. always roses. Mm. Speaking of shit stuff, <laughs> what has been your biggest mistake oh, along the way or like so the biggest many. kind of thing that's blown up in your face and how did you overcome it? Oh, I, honestly, I make so many mistakes even now. Um, probably the worst one I've made was a packaging error where I put the wrong, it sounds so small in what the actual outcome is, but I had the wrong nut listed in an allergen. So which food, it's just like the biggest no-no. So I think I had peanuts listed instead of almonds. So we had just launched into Caltex and we had to recall all of our stock nationally. And that was a really expensive mistake. Mm. I think I cost us about a hundred grand and we had products Mm. off the shelf for about three months. Oh, wow. Which meant that our run rates were really bad. Yeah. Um, so that was a pretty big lesson. But you um, overcame it. I overcame <laughs> You're it. You're still here. I'm still <laughs> survived. Um, and, you know, I learned really some big lessons there and we put yeah. in some good processes. It mm. all sounds a bit boring but, like, you know, I find it is that the boring stuff that gets you undone. So, yeah. you know, I think it's really easy to focus on the marketing campaign and the branding and, you know, the look and feel, but then it's like, have you paid attention to the legal side of things? Have you actually looked at the attention to detail and those smallest things? And I think that's where you come unstuck. Um, And I'm glad that, you know, we learned that quickly and, you know, the right insurances. So with recall in retail, you get fined for having to take your products off a shelf as well as you have to pay to destroy it. 
you know, it's just crazy. So just, you know, ensuring you've crossed your T's and dotted your I's. I definitely think um, it's not always the sexy stuff. (laughs) (laughs) It's important. Yep. Yeah. And and so what's been your biggest win on the flip side? On the flip side. Yeah, on the flip side. Yeah. um, And I think that is the best bit about the entrepreneurial thing is that your highs, they match with your lows and then make the highs even sweeter and it's such a roller coaster. But um, I'd probably say it's been recent launching we've launched into beauty and wellness powders um, and we've launched a range nationally into Woolworths so I think seeing your product on the shelves in the vitamin aisle next to some like pretty established big brands is a pretty cool moment I think mm, yeah absolutely. so we're pretty proud of that well done yeah that's been good mm-hmm. now I just need to sell them yeah <laughs> <laughs> go buy everyone no, no, buy. Go please buy keep me on the let shelves. us know what you think yeah, <laughs> yeah. so you know and that's it like the highs are then followed though with like yeah you know it's not just getting your product into a retailer you've got to stay there mm. so um yeah no, it's part. good fun though mm. yeah. yeah yeah do you think your marketing background's been pretty helpful definitely yeah yeah I think you know, and you are, you go up against food manufacturers and they might have a great product, but you just like, they can't translate it in a way that the customers kind of can understand. So yeah, I think it definitely has helped. Um, and we kind of have structured the business. So we keep, you know, marketing is pretty much the core function in-house and where we kind of allocate our resources to, and then we outsource areas that we're just not strong in, like manufacturing, mm-hmm. like logistics, even a lot of our sales team aren't in-house. So yeah, it's definitely, I think, been a big part of our business. Who inspires you? So it'll probably sound really cliche again, but um, I'd say my daughter. Who is? I know, you can't <laughs> help it. So it just gives you a new re- you know, reason to work harder, I think. And it kind of gives you a reason for what you're doing it all mm. for, because, you know, there's some long days in there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's definitely been a new addition to my inspiration. This isn't usually in it, but what legacy do you want to leave? Having to, you know, talking about yeah. your daughter. Yep. Yeah. What is what, what's the legacy? You know, it's an, a really nice thing to think about. Yeah, you do realize you want your kids to be proud of you and what you've created. So I think to actually create a successful business that I started from nothing, and that one day maybe she'll see still on the shelves mm. when she's my age, which would be pretty cool. Yeah, I think that would definitely be a big driver for me. But more than anything, it would be that belief in her, I think, yeah. you know, that she really can do whatever she wants in the world and that we've kind of all women of our generation have helped carve that, I think. Mm. We're really making some changes to what her experience will be like compared to ours and even our mum's experiences growing up. So it's an exciting time for her, I think. Mm. So exciting. Yeah, it's a nice generation. That's really cute. Um, what makes you happy? I think um, when people actually recognise the brand and kind of they know it when you're talking to them, that's kind of a cool moment when you're like, oh, you know it. Okay, that's really cool. And then probably my two dogs, Border Collies. (laughs) Who we're going to babysit. Yeah. (laughs) It's a circus at our house. (laughs) Toddlers and dogs and protein balls. Sounds like the start of a bad joke. Yeah, Yeah, it (laughs) It really is. Yeah. That's so good. And final question. Yes. Where do you want to take this? Like what's your ambition? What does big mean for you? Yeah, so big for us is we're going to be the biggest health and wellness brand in the world. 
globally. Watch this space. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's just a tiny ambition. Love it. Totally achievable. Um, But, yeah, we're we're definitely going to give it our all um, while we can. So we'll see what happens. But, yeah, we've got – that's hopefully big. Amazing. Stay tuned. Stay tuned, people. And go out and buy the bowls and powder. Yeah, Yeah. keep me on the shelves, please. (laughs) (laughs) Make it happen. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Instagram, lady.brains, and head over to ladybrains.com.au to find out more about our events and other cool things that are happening.